I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what you're hearing right now is the... I guess you could say it's the... inauguration of a new miniseries that I'm working through right now. It's called Unfinished Business. And I guess the, uh, the concept behind all of it's actually pretty simple. Throughout the course of running this podcast... There have been a zillion different things where I've said, okay, I really like this comic book, and uh, I'm going to talk more about it in the future. I don't know when, but I'm going to talk about it some more in the future. You know, or this movie, or whatever else. You know, you guys have heard me say that a thousand fucking times, but the next episode almost always is something else. So I thought it might be kind of fun to have a mini-series where I sort of pick up where I left off in previous episodes, you know, where I said, hey, I'm going to come back to this in the future, I just don't know when. Well, now is when. So, anyway, hope you guys enjoy it. Now, what I usually do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but it's not usually all about Star Wars. Nope. Nope. And mostly that's because Star Wars is one of those nearly universal subjects that we all know about. We all developed opinions about it decades ago, so really, what more is there to say? Well, maybe a lot. What I eventually came to realize is that I have an angle on the prequel films that I have sincerely never heard anywhere else before. And so because of that, for my 99th episode, I did a show that was all about Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And the response to that show was pretty positive, too. People seemed to believe that I was pretty even-handed with my remarks about the movie. Episode One bashers thought that I raised at least a couple of valid points about the film's strengths and positive qualities. The episode one true believers thought that the criticisms of the movie that I made were perfectly in order. So, it seemed a little obvious to eventually talk about the rest of the prequels, or, for this episode at least, Attack of the Clones. 
Now, my main point in that Phantom Menace episode was to emphasize that I believe episode one had some amazingly good ideas going for it. It also had some horrifyingly terrible ideas weakening it. And so because of all of that, it's kind of tempting to say that it all came out in a wash. The Phantom Menace isn't completely awesome. But it's not completely crap either. The truth is somewhere in the middle. In many ways, I believe a lot of similar things can be said for Attack of the Clones. I mean, the aesthetics of Episode 2 are second to none. There's this... Just, there's something powerful about watching the clone troopers march through their drills on Kamino. It hits the Star Wars fan right between the eyes. It, and in fact, it's hard not to draw a kind of visual comparison between all those glory shots of the clone troopers marching around and similar shots from Triumph of the Will. The implication there is pretty clear. Or it should be, anyway. As a matter of fact, the Grand Army of the Republic goes to the heart of what Attack of the Clones is all about. In the first place, the Clone Army represents a moral failing on the part of the Republic. Now, for the moment, put aside the fact that Chan uh, Chancellor Palpatine is secretly controlling both the Republic and the Separatists. The idea of creating an army for the Republic has support among the Senate and the public. The elites are on board with the idea, and so's Joe Sixpack. Now, if the entire Senate and the member planets of the Republic were vehemently opposed to even the possibility of war, they'd have kicked Palpatine out of office. At the very least, Palpatine wouldn't have had much to work with in terms of popular support to build the army. On top of that, if the Jedi Order thought of warfare as a, as a barbaric moral evil, they'd condemn even the appearance of aggression from Palpatine. But none of them do. All levels of society, to varying degrees, seem on board with the idea of creating an army. I mean, yeah, sure, you've got hippie peacenicks like, like Padme who oppose it on moral and philosophical grounds, but there's more than enough popular support for militarization to have real debate about the merits and risks of the idea. And when all's said and done, everybody eventually, eventually accepts the clones without question once the army's existence is revealed. The members of the Senate only care about lining their own pockets and holding on to power. They don't give a flying fuck about how many people on both sides might die in a full-scale war. All that matters to them is they hold on to power. Now, as for the Jedi Council, back in Episode 1, they didn't give a damn about Queen Amidala, Anakin, or Jar Jar. In fact, they didn't seem to care about too much of anything until Qui-Gon mentioned the possibility that the Sith were once again active in the galaxy. That got the Council's attention. So, basically, the Jedi Order doesn't care about anything or anybody. Not until their asses are on the line. It's even worse here in Attack of the Clones. The Jedi are still a bunch of self-interested cocks and their main concern is still protecting their position within the Republic, no matter who gets hurt in the process. 
certainly they're not opposed to the Military Creation Act, but on top of all that, now Mace Windu and Yoda are going so far as to concoct conspiracies of their own to hide their weaknesses and diminishing abilities from the Force from the Senate. You know, the very people they're sworn to fucking protect. Yes, the clones truly do bring out the worst in everybody. And other stuff, like I say, Padme opposes the Military Creation Act. Now, yes, she's a hippie pacifist with ideals way out of line with reality. But here's the thing. She understands that if the Republic offers a Separatist war, the Separatists can only respond with war. That's her thought process, for a while anyway. It doesn't last though, but at least at first, Padme understands that the minute the Republican militarizes, they're conceding the moral argument to the Separatists. I mean, yeah, sure, some of the proponents of the Military Creation Act have logical arguments. I mean, who's to say that the Separatists won't invade Republic space later on, whether the Republic militarizes or not? But then, isn't that a topic for another day? Or at least, shouldn't it be? Yes, ultimately the Sith are controlling the Republic and the Separatists. But ask yourself something. Can all the Separatists be wicked, evil, murderous thugs? Isn't it likely that most of them just want a chance to live their lives away from what they at least believe is an uncaring, unsympathetic Republic? Don't those, star, those sovereign star systems have the right to control their own destinies if they want to? Should they be dragged, kicking and screaming, back into the Republic just because the fucking Republic has stood for a thousand years and by God, that's the way it ought to stay? No matter how you slice it, the Military Creation Act is the opening salvos of tyranny. And that's not lost on Padme. At least not at first. In the beginning, She's very well aware that militarization is taking a turn for the worse. But that stuff is lost on Jar Jar. I mean, God bless him, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand that voting to give Chancellor Palpatine emergency powers to deal with the Separatists won't solve the conflict. It'll only escalate it. The Republic, building its own army, only increases the odds of war. And that'd be true even if the Sith didn't have both sides under their control. But since the Sith do control both sides, all militarization does is bring the Sith's real agenda. It plays right into their hands. And let's face it, the protagonists don't exactly have a clean slate here. Obi-Wan, Padme, and Anakin all chose the path of anger and aggression rather than negotiation and diplomacy back in The Phantom Menace. They've already done it once. And that makes it all the more easy to make the same choice again. And in Attack of the Clones, they do. With varying degrees of protest. Ultimately, all this talk about wars, armies, clones, and all that other bullshit highlight the moral arguments Lucas is making in Attack of the Clones. The issue here is that violence begets violence. This is true on a macro level, 
in Attack of the Clones, sure, but it's also true on the micro level. All through the film, the character who initiates aggression and violence always loses. Zam Wessel turns her gun on Obi-Wan in the sports bar and loses her arm. Obi-Wan attacks Jango Fett on Kamino and gets the shit kicked out of him. The Sand People kidnap and torture Shmi, uh, Shmi Skywalker, so Anakin kills them all. Jango Fett attacks Mace Windu on Geonosis and loses his head over it. Anakin attacks Count Dooku and loses his arm. Count Dooku attacks Yoda and gets the hell kicked out of him. And ultimately, the Republic invades the Separatists, and it'll be everybody who loses when both the Republic and the Separatists disappear to be replaced by the Empire. In Attack of the Clones, the only lasting victories come from friendship, love, self-sacrifice, acceptance, and understanding. Aggression isn't just of the dark side. It's a one-way ticket to defeat, maiming, and possibly death. War threatens everybody. People make fun of that moment that Padme has in that field on Naboo, and they call it this movie's Sound of Music moment. And I gotta be honest, it's odd to me that the bashers can recognize the reference, but miss the significance. If you're familiar with the Sound of Music, that moment's clearly foreshadowing the eventual encroachment of war on Padme and Anakin's love. There are two major instances of Anakin struggling to breathe. The first comes when he and Obi-Wan ride the elevator at the beginning of the film. The second comes when Anakin confesses his love to Padme. In both of those scenes, Anakin has a hard time catching his breath, and the dialogue verbalizes those things. And in each case, Anakin's love for Padme is the cause of his respiratory problems. Even without Episode 3 to prove us right, we instinctively know that Padme is going to play a major role in Anakin's turn to the dark side. But to move on to other things, and I guess speaking of non-Star Wars movies, Attack of the Clones may have more visual allusions to other films than any other Star Wars movie. At a glance, there are numerous references to Gladiator, Lawrence of Arabia, Blade Runner, Metropolis, The Searchers, The Maltese Falcon, and probably other shit I'm forgetting about. Each instance of that is intended to call upon the viewer's associations of those moments in those films and place them in the context of Star Wars. These aren't just casual fan service moments. Lucas is trying to communicate an idea with all of those. Speaking of aesthetics, during Anakin's duel with Count Dooku, there's a moment where the two of them fight each other in the darkness. Their faces are lit only by their lightsabers. The implication there is that in moral and in psychological terms, Anakin isn't as far away from Dooku as you might think. Anyway, another common visual theme in Attack of the Clones involves steam, mist, fog, smoke, and other stuff. Everywhere the protagonists go, eventually their vision gets obscured. The shroud of the dark side is literally falling. But there's also a symbolic element to that stuff as well. Characters talk endlessly about being blind or, or being short-sighted. The closer they all come to willingly choosing war, the more they lose their way. On a moral level, they are losing their, their way. 
all this haze and smoke is a visual representation of our characters losing their moral compass, or giving into fear, or what have you. Yes, it'd be safe to say that the moral certainties of youth are far behind all of them now. And just on a personal level, I find that kind of easy to relate to, in that, you know, I remember when I was in high school and early on in college, when I was pretty sure I knew everything in the whole fucking world, and now, now I'm, I'm uh, 35, and I don't know nothing about nothing, and I know that. In their own way, every single one of the characters in Attack of the Clones is willing to compromise on what's right in favor of short-term gain. There's a textual element to all of it as well in that throughout the film, there's an intricate web of falsehood and deceit being created literally by everyone. I mentioned Yoda and Mace a while ago, and they're a good example of what I'm talking about here. At various times and in various ways, both Yoda and Mace sell out the core integrity and virtue that the Jedi are supposed to represent. Here we see the Jedi Order, who are supposed to be morally superior to everybody, and even they talk about ways of lying to and tricking the Senate to keep their weaknesses a secret. As I said back in episode 99, the Jedi Council is just another layer of bureaucratic corruption on the planet Coruscant. But another example of lies and falsehoods come from Anakin and Padme's secret wedding ceremony. Now, sure, they get married out in the sunlight while that, that gorgeous love theme swells in the background, but it's totally deceptive. They both agreed that falling in love would mean total lies becoming their entire existence. But here they both are, embracing deceit and falsehood with both arms. Speaking of Anakin, he wipes out an entire village of sand people. Now, yeah, they killed his mother, but who can blame him for being upset? But at the same time, is that really how a Jedi is supposed to act? But. On top of all that, there's nothing to suggest that Anakin tells anybody other than Padme what he's done. It looks for all the world like that's a secret Anakin's reluctant to share with just anybody. By the time credits roll for Attack of the Clones, all the characters have passed the point of no return. They've abandoned morality, duty, and responsibility for expediency. Sooner or later, those chickens are coming home to roost, y'all. Now, on that note, a lot of symbolism's wrapped up in characters falling. Imagery of descent is prevalent all through the film. Every major character falls from a great height at some point or another. It's a visualization of the characters metaphorically falling from grace. As the narrative moves closer and closer to war, Images of characters falling from great heights occurs more frequently. Now, none of this is lost on Yoda. At least not completely. Yoda may not know exactly what's coming, but he's starting to understand just how fucked the galaxy in general, the Republic in particular, and the Jedi Order specifically truly are. Yoda understands that the Battle of Geonosis wasn't a one-shot military engagement. It was an act of war. And the Republic was the aggressor. 
And on top of all that, Yoda himself was the general who led the engagement. His hands are anything but clean in all this. The Republic and the Jedi may have been victorious in battle, but they've lost their moral clarity. For the first time, Yoda realizes that. When he bitches Obi-Wan out for calling the Battle of Geonosis a victory, I think what we're seeing is Yoda acknowledge for the first time that the Jedi may actually deserve whatever's coming next. Anyway, to move on to other symbolism, Naboo is a world of lush vegetation and endlessly stretched out lakes. Now, this is all classic feminine and very fertile imagery. Naboo is a world for falling in love, and the fertility symbolism says that it's a place for having children. But because of that, it shouldn't be a surprise to find Anakin putting the moves on Padme while they're on Naboo. Naboo's darker half is Kamino. It's a world covered in ocean and perpetually drenched in thunder, lightning, and torrential downpours. You can see nature lashing out in rage. It shouldn't be a surprise to find that procreation is being corrupted and profaned in Kamino genetics labs. And by the way, speaking of genetics labs, man, they sure do look like they could have been borrowed from a Death Star or a Super Star Destroyer, don't they? Anyway, moving on to other things, the speeder chase is the big action uh, set piece of the first act of the film. It's full of thrills and chills, uh, characters recklessly jumping out of windows and moving vehicles, and, and as always, some amazing John Williams music, uh, music. There's much to be said about uh, the characters here in all this, though. The visual of characters falling is prevalent all through the speeder chase. Obi-Wan dives out a window and nearly plummets to his death, but manages to catch the assassin droid. From there, he gets taken for a ride all through the city until, he get, uh, until again, he takes another fall. Later, during the speeder chase, Anakin chooses to jump out of the speeder and free falls until he crash lands on Zam's speeder. But there's more even than that. In episode one, Coruscant was the place of false hopes broken promises and crushed dreams. It looked like a world of truth and justice, but the truth is Coruscant's actually the complete opposite. But here in Attack of the Clones, Coruscant's a den of deceit, corruption, and danger. Crooked politicians, complacent Jedi, evil Sith, and assassins disguised as beautiful women can all be found here. Nothing is what it seems on Coruscant. Coruscant was always a place of deception, but by episode two, the rot and corruption of the Republic isn't just plainly visible. It's now become a very real threat. Nothing good happens on Coruscant, and you're taking your life in your own hands if you stick around too long. Now, to move on to some other symbolism, and I guess to continue with the recurring visual of characters falling, we see Anakin descend into the Tuscan uh, Raider village. Now, this works on two levels. First, it's a common angle in a lot of myths for a character, usually the hero of the piece, to venture into hell 
or Hades, or the Underworld, or whatever you want to call it, in order to rescue a loved one. That's exactly what Anakin's doing here. And that realm is always portrayed as a downward journey. Second, considering this is the guy's first taste of murder and carnage, there's the more obvious angle of Anakin descending into darkness. This is Anakin's first taste of the dark side. The imagery of Anakin willingly falling into darkness speaks for itself. Or it should, anyway. Of course, before all that takes place, Anakin zips through the desert while Duel of the Fates swirls in the background. Anakin's fueled by anger and vengeance, while the sky above is blood red. Again, the imagery should speak for itself here. Now, I could probably go on and on about the symbolism all day long, but there are other issues to sort through. A logical question to ask is just what the fuck Attack of the Clones is even about? Why do the characters make the choices that they do? What's really going on? It's actually relatively simple. Palpatine knows that a vote's coming soon about the Military Creation Act. He also knows that Padme is going to vote against it. As a pacifist, she really has no other choice. And she could lead other senators to do the same thing. Palpatine has got to get her out of the way. I think the attempt on her life at the beginning of the movie was real. Nobody except Padme's inner circle had any way of knowing that she wouldn't be aboard the Naboo starship. This would have been an effective way of neutralizing Padme, while also making her a martyr and, in the bargain, demonizing the Separatists. This would have virtually guaranteed the Military Creation Act would pass. But, obviously Padme's security team was a step ahead of everybody else. Still, Palpatine's very good at thinking on his feet, so he uses the occasion to force Padme off the planet while the Military Creation Act comes up for a vote. This serves many purposes. First, there's the obvious practical benefit of getting Padme out of the picture. Second, there's the fringe benefit of Padme's vote being given to a warmongering idiot like Jar Jar Binks. But third, Palpatine isn't stupid. He's been Anakin's friend ever since he first joined the Jedi. Even if Anakin never mentioned that he had the hots for Padme, you kinda gotta figure Palpatine would have put two and two together all on his own. I'm gonna suggest to you that Palpatine paired Anakin and Padme up on purpose. Sooner or later, Palpatine knew that Anakin would make a pass at her. If Padme accepted Anakin's, uh, Anakin's advances, well, that'd be just fine and dandy. But if she shot him down, hey, that works too. Either way, it fucks with a Jedi and compromises him emotionally. And I think Palpatine would put a premium on that. You see, I don't think Palpatine's necessarily courting Anakin for future Sith apprenticeship here in Attack of the Clones. I mean, maybe he is. But I just doubt it. I think all Palpatine wants to do is keep the Jedi Order off balance. That can be done in the big picture by overwhelming them with disputes over territory, borders, and all that other shit. But it can also be done on the small scale of royally pissing Anakin off, or getting him into bed with Padme. Either of those exploits Anakin's emotional vulnerabilities. But Palpatine's got another purpose. 
He spent years secretly developing the Grand Army of the Republic. Officially, Palpatine knows nothing about it. But unofficially, Count Dooku, which is to say Palpatine's apprentice, is the one who placed the order for the clones on Kamino. So, because Palpatine needs a plausible deniability about the clones, he needs someone from the Republic to officially report the army's existence to him. Then he has to co-opt the army for his own use. It's likely, at least in my opinion, that Palpatine left a trail of breadcrumbs for the Jedi to follow all the way back to Kamino for that exact purpose. And the Jedi don't disappoint. Once the existence of the clone army's been announced, that virtually guarantees that the Military Creation Act is going to pass. And once it becomes known that the Separatists have, ca have captured a Republic Senator and two Jedi Knights, it virtually guarantees that the army can be immediately mobilized to go to the rescue and provoke a war. Now, Palpatine wants those benefits, but he doesn't want the blame for all that. He's had plausible deniability through this whole thing. There's no way he'll accept blame for the army and the war if things go south. So he needs a patsy that he can hang everything on. And that's why it's vital that the Jedi lead the clones into battle. I mean, think of the propaganda opportunities here. It's widely assumed that the Jedi placed the order for the clone army. Two Jedi were captured on Geonosis. Yoda, Mace, and, and several other famous Jedi led the charge to Kamino to rescue the, uh, the kidnapped Jedi. Every single aspect of this is made to order should Palpatine ever need to demonize and vilify the Jedi Order. From there, the Jedi reliably provoke a civil war, and as the coup de grace, Palpatine obtained absolute power in the bargain. This is what he was aiming for all along anyway and now he finally has it. Speaking of the Jedi, last time I talked about what a bunch of assholes the Jedi Council in general, and Mace Windu and Yoda in particular all are. You could fairly argue based on the events of the Phantom Menace that the Jedi Order's problems were all members of the Council. Which is to say, their problems with stupidity and corruption and bu just bureaucratic douchebaggery these things were limited to just the council. The complacency and the apathy hadn't really affected the entire Jedi Order. At the time of the Phantom Menace, it had corrupted only their leadership. You can't really say that anymore by the time of Attack of the Clones, though. Jocasta knew the Jedi Librarian bitches Obi-Wan out for daring to suggest that the Jedi Archives might be incomplete. Jocasta dismisses that idea out of hand. The Jedi Order's knowledge of everything is, to, is absolute. If the Jedi Archives don't know something, it's because it doesn't exist to be known. But before too long, we're going to find out that Obi-Wan was right to be suspicious. Before that scene takes place, though, Obi-Wan goes to the Jedi uh, analysis droids off-screen based only upon symbols, appearances, and other superficialities, the droids decide the saber dart that Obi-Wan found doesn't come from any known culture in the galaxy. So even the Jedi Order's droids think they know everything. 
But in short order, we find that the Jedi don't have a monopoly on knowledge. Dexter Jetster explains the Dart's true origins to Obi-Wan. Dex's knowledge comes from experience. Understanding and interpreting facts is what leads you to truth. In case it's not obvious yet, my point in saying all of this stuff is there's a lot to love about Attack of the Clones. As I said, uh, about both Attack of the Clones, but really about Episode 1, it's full to overflowing with good ideas, amazing visuals, highbrow themes, meditations on the balance between passion and reason, the, the uneasy tension between practicality and idealism. Uh, for its time, cutting-edge visual effects, kick-ass production design, and the always-reliable John Williams music. Attack of the Clones has many strengths, just like The Phantom Menace. But for as rich and powerful as all that stuff that I just mentioned might be, Attack of the Clones suffers from all the same flaws as The Phantom Menace, too. There's the kind of strange, non-sequitur dialogue with characters arguing points that nobody's made or even mentioned. And speaking of which, George Lucas favors a kind of sweeping, lyrical approach to dialogue. That's the clear, stylistic preference Lucas uses in all of the prequels. And there's a degree to which that sort of stilted way of writing dialogue actually makes a lot of sense. Attack of the Clones takes place in a more refined and formal time in the galaxy's history than, say, The Empire Strikes Back. If The Empire Strikes Back takes place during the American Civil War, I would say that Attack of the Clones goes down during the Renaissance. That's a lot to get your head around, and it has to be said that not all the cast members were capable of doing that. It's interesting that the European actors were mostly capable of working with what they were given. Ian McDermott, Christopher Lee, and Ewan McGregor all make their scenes the best they can be. Meanwhile, the Americans mostly struggle with the endless cavalcade of, of hammy dialogue. Hayden Christensen, Natalie Portman, and to a lesser degree, <clears throat> Samuel L. Jackson seem lost in many of their scenes. And that's unusual since those same actors have all given solid performances in other films. And I don't blame the zillions of visual effects for that either. I think it's a pretty simple case of Lucas wanting the actors to mostly just deliver their lines without doing all that much heavy lifting in terms of acting. As long as the characters hit the right marks on the set, emote in ways relatively appropriate for the tone of the scene, and get their dialogue basically right, Lucas didn't really seem to be too concerned with believable performances. Now, if Star Wars wasn't a story predicated on morality, passion, anger, love, hatred, forgiveness, and other shit, that wouldn't be a problem. But when you're dealing with emotional minefields like that, the acting needs to be a little more up to par. And by and large, the performances in Attack of the Clones just don't measure up. Now, I exempt Hayden Christensen from at least some of this. I mean, he's not exactly the most charismatic actor in the world, but I think he made a lot of intelligent decisions. He chose to use a sort of 
monotone type of delivery for Anakin to somewhat mimic the way that Darth Vader speaks. And he also sometimes uses intentionally stiff postures, again, to harken, uh, harken back to familiar uh, Vader habits. Now, was that really wise? Might Anakin as a character have been better served by continuing to be played as kind of an opposite to Darth Vader? Who knows? But critics and fans alike panned Hayden Christensen's performance, so whatever method there may have been to his madness, most people obviously don't buy it. There's more, though. Attack of the Clones doesn't just have the same flaws as The Phantom Menace. It's actually got a few new flaws of its own. The most obvious thing to mention here is the love story. Now, the love story operates on two levels. The first level is the way that Lucas intended, which is that Anakin and Padme's story is one of courtly love. Attack of the Clones takes place in a time that you could somewhat compare to a sort of a mixture of the Renaissance and the Gilded Age. Formality and strict social structures rule everything. On that basis, you can see how Anakin might tell Padme he's haunted by the kiss that she should never have given him. How his love for her pains him. And bullshit like that. Anakin and Padme's romance isn't defined by getting drunk in bars, having a one-night stand, and then, oops, here comes a baby. No. They steal glances at each other. They sneak kisses when they think nobody's watching. They're both restraining their passions because they're both expected to live up to a very different set of ideals and social norms. The galaxy far, far away as we see it in Attack of the Clones is governed by very strict social protocols. In fact, I dare say it's almost a cast-oriented system where knights and nobility are forbidden from... They're mutually for, uh, forbidden from each other. Anakin, as the ultimate commoner and peasant made good, epitomizes everything Padme is socially forbidden from mingling and for Anakin's own part, he's forbidden from bonding with anyone. The Jedi Code forbids making attachments of any kind precisely because of the instability that it, that it entails. When you love someone or something, you have something to lose, and that jeopardizes the serenity and dispassion that's supposed to mark a Jedi's existence. So, in falling in love with each other, Padme and Anakin are turning all social protocol on its head. Love, for Anakin and Padme, is most assuredly a victory. It's the first time that either of them have chosen something selfishly. They, they, they've, that they've wanted something for themselves for once, rather than the greater fucking good. It's an act of complete rebellion at the same time. Giving into their temptations can only lead to scandal and disgrace. So, on the level which George Lucas intended the story to work, it's actually incredibly fucking powerful stuff. And that leads us to the second level that the love story operates on, which is how wide audiences received it. And specifically, it wasn't very good. Like it or not, people have certain expectations of love stories in modern cinema. And Attack of the Clones is nowhere near that. 
Now, I think people would have connected to these exact same scenes with these exact same actors using the exact same dialogue in an episode of The Tudors or something like that because we inherently understand by the formal language and period setting of The Tudors that society was dictated by vastly different social norms than what we relate to today. The problem in all of this is that Attack of the Clones is filled to overflowing with some relatively modern vocabulary and dialogue, cutting edge, at least for the time, cutting edge CGI, and other bullshit. It was just too hard for people to connect Anakin's behavior with an older, more traditional type of formal, courtly romance. Rather than being seen as a lovesick knight on a quest to prove his love for his lady fair, audiences interpreted Anakin's words and actions in bizarre, almost stalkerish kind of terms. And by contemporary standards, well, it's hard to argue the point there. Lucas clearly understands the tone that he's shooting for here, but white audiences didn't. And that's not their fault. Lucas should have either made more familiar visual connections to the Renaissance style that he was shooting for in order to help audi- you know, audiences track Anakin and Padme's story better, or else he should have just told a more modern type of romance. But mixing state-of-the-art visuals with centuries-old notions of romance is clearly not a winning formula. On top of all that stuff, though, Attack of the Clone, uh, Attack of the Clones tracks music from The Phantom Menace. And in a film series where John Williams handles the score, I regard this as an almost criminal offense. There's just no need to throw that Anakin defeats Sebulba bit of music from episode one into the Battle of Geonosis, which is, lest we forget, the opening salvos of the fucking Clone Wars. For the first time, we start getting to things that Ben Burt is responsible for. Now, Ben Burt is a master when it comes to sound design. Nobody can deny that. But beginning with the prequels, Burt spread his wings into other departments. And I gotta be honest, I think the end result often suffered as a result. Beginning with Attack of the Clones, what we see is a tendency to track in music from previous films, even though perfectly good and brand new John Williams music is ready, willing, and able to be used. And a lot of this comes from Ben Burt, who for the first time took a more active hand, not just in sound design, but also sound mixing. There are instances of plenty where Burt wants the sound effects to take center stage to such a degree that music is almost completely drowned out. But even if it's audible, you can offer, often remember which track from the Phantom Menace score is being played in the middle of Attack of the Clones, and it's just unfucking forgivable. All the parties involved acknowledge Ben Burt's responsibility here, so I'm not picking on the guy just to pick on him. He really does seem like a nice guy, but the fact is that he took several of the post-production aspects of Attack of the Clones into the wrong direction, especially as regards the usage of music. I usually take a lot of heat when I criticize Ben Burt, so I hope you guys can at least see where I'm coming from here. The guy does some things 
incredibly well, but he totally sucks at other things. That's what I'm saying, and that's all I'm saying. Another thing is that Attack of the Clones is a turning point for Star Wars in as much as this is the first prequel to really show cracks in the armor when it comes to the prequel storyline. This was the first indication that even the true believers got that maybe this isn't going to be the cornucopia of awesome that we all expected. Now, as I said back in episode 99, The Phantom Menace really only accomplished two things. First, it put Palpatine in the leadership role for the Republic, and second, it turned Anakin into a Jedi. But those are all that it was allowed to accomplish because Lucas had two more films to work through. Attack of the Clones is where we start seeing just how bizarre the pacing of each prequel film has to be. You see, I'm going to share a little conspiracy theory with you guys. I'm going to suggest to you that I don't think Lucas ever intended to film the backstory of the original trilogy. I don't think he ever really intended to make the prequels. Because when you analyze what the storyline of the prequels has to be from a dramatic standpoint, there's really no convenient way of making three evenly balanced films out of that. You can make one huge film, maybe four films, or whatever else, but three, and only three, leads to a situation where the pacing of the story suffers. It just has to. One logical thing people say is that Anakin and Obi-Wan don't have very much screen time together for you to buy that, they're, that they've really bonded with each other during Attack of the Clones. And I think there's a germ of truth to that. Most of Anakin's scenes revolve around Padme, and it has to be that way, because their story is so crucial to the film and to the rest of the saga. And their story requires that Obi-Wan conveniently be someplace else. But the drawback to that is that it leaves Obi-Wan mostly reprimanding Anakin in the film without ever really showing much of a bond of friendship. They tear each other up a lot, but you rarely see the almost brotherhood that they've supposedly developed since episode one. People have joked that the trailers for the prequels are actually better than the films th themselves. And I realize that's meant kind of as a jest, but I think there's a real element of truth to that. The trailers give us the flavor of the story without too much of the stilted, heavy dialogue, the strange pacing of the story, or that, let's face it, antiquated love story. I really and truly do believe that people way overreacted to the prequels in general, and Attack of the Clones in particular, but that doesn't mean they were factually wrong in what they said. At the end of the day, I have to categorize Attack of the Clones in more or less the same way I categorize The Phantom Menace. It's got an incredible number of, of great ideas in it. The action scenes are first rate. The themes and literary sophistication are second to none. And how can you not enjoy seeing the, the opening of the Clone Wars as darkness descends upon the galaxy? It's not just good and it's not just bad. As with The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones is hampered by the fact that George Lucas is an extremely intellectual filmmaker. 
He crafted the prequel trilogy in a way that's designed to engage your brain. The flaw with that approach, of course, is that Star Wars is a franchise that's built on adventure, excitement, and other things that a Jedi craves not. For Lucas, this may be a wholly intellectual affair, but that's fundamentally not what Star Wars wants to be. Star Wars dazzles the eye with thrilling action, action sequences and, and tugs at the heart with the story about the mother of all broken families. George's fixations for historical metaphor and throwback romances need an emotional grounding to make them all palatable. As a screenwriter, Lucas is either unwilling or, or unable to engage that aspect of the creative process. And not to sound like everybody else, I think a screenwriter with a sharper eye for drama and a, and a director with a keener sense of performance might have been able to overcome Lucas's weaknesses in those areas. Surely, the man can craft uh, an adventure spectacle like nobody else, but guys, the shit blows up factor can only take you so far. After that, you need characters to serve as anchors for the narrative, and that's where Lucas comes up short. That having been said, though, only a fool would deny his many and varied strengths as a filmmaker, so... Perhaps in the final analysis, the real weakness of the prequels in general, and Attack of the Clones in particular, is the lack of balance it strives for in telling a grand adventure story in a dramatic and engaging way. Irrespective, there's a lot to admire about Attack of the Clones. Anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for me this week. Um, as to, I guess, future episodes in this unfinished business uh, series that I'm working through, what I want to do is talk about some Legion of Superheroes, some Justice Society, and maybe some other stuff too. I want to keep a few things to myself. Partly it's to sustain a surprise, but partly it's because I haven't completely made up my mind yet as to what all of this is going to be all about. So I want to leave my room, leave myself room for a little bit of flexibility here. So anyway, uh, just tune in next week for another episode of Unfinished Business here with Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. But for right now, I think that's pretty much it for me. So... Bye, everybody. I will see you next week. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. 
join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarter Bin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story, monthly at mystarwarsstory.com Hey kids, do you like comics? Uh-huh. Do you like Iron Man comics? Uh-huh. Do you want to learn more about Iron Man's downward spiral from alcoholism, fear of commitment, and feelings of inferiority leading the egomaniac into a life of misery? Uh, what? Then listen to the Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition and see Tony Stark go from genius billionaire playboy philanthropist to genius billionaire playboy philanthropist with awesome weaponized armor. Relive classic stories like Demon in a Bottle, Armor Wars, Doom Quest, and more. Hosted by me, Mike Staley. So how about it, kids? Do you want to listen to the Invincible Iron Cast? Uh-huh. Well, too bad. You need to do your homework. Uh-huh. The Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition. On iTunes or at invincibleironcast.podbean.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. 
visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.